Welcome to the Veterans Perspective, presented by the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency, with your host, Director of the MVAA, Zanetta Adams. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective. We are still celebrating Women's History Month and talking about women's health as well today. Joining us today to talk about that is Amber Fogarty, Director, Manager, Talent Pipeline Programs, uh, person at the Consumers Energy. Lourdes Tiglau, Director of Women's Health at the Center for Women Veterans, and Ina Golden, Navy Veteran Retired. We have a great show for you today. I think you will get some historical background as well as hear more about some of the opportunities and the great women that are serving the state. As always, you can find out more information about women veterans at our website, michigan.gov MVAA. You can find out about our Women Veterans Conference that's coming in June at that same website. And we hope that you will take an opportunity and maybe come out and join us. So we'll be right back on the Veterans Perspective. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective. I'm your host, Anetta Adams, Director of the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency. And today's show is really talking about women's history and women's health. You know, we're going to take a special look at some of the health issues and, and things going on. But, you know, as we're talking about history, I want to make sure we dive into that. So um, just to give you some historical background about Women's History Month, again, you know, in 1987, this was designated Women's History Month and uh, by public law 100-9. And we like to take this opportunity to reflect on women's history and how women trailblazers have incredible stories that have, should be honored and remembered. So just to highlight some of those famous women veterans out there, um, you know, I wanted to highlight first off Cathay Williams, who joined the army as a man named William Cathay in November, 1866. Now what's interesting is that this is the second week in a row that we've talked about women veterans who have made tremendous contributions to our country, but they had to serve as men. You know what, and, and I know this is not the only story, and there's probably more of these stories, including the ones we shared last week. But after multiple health issues and the discovery that Williams was a woman, she was honorably discharged due to her disabilities in October 1868. However, she signed up with an emerging all-Black regiment that would eventually become part of the legendary Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, you know, uh, it's already hard serving in the military as a woman and then as a woman of color as well. And then she had to serve as a man. So the things that we do to make sure we get the job done, but you know what, we've been doing it for years and we will continue to serve alongside our brothers in arms. And we just wanna make sure that these women are recognized and those who are continuing to serve are recognized as well. And so that brings us to Dr. Mary Walker who applied in 1861 to become a surgeon with the Union Army, but was rejected. She remained as a volunteer until two years later, she finally received an appointment to serve as an assistant surgeon in the army. She lobbied for women's causes and for her service during the war, she was awarded the Medal of Honor in 1865. Little known fact though, it was taken, it was taken away. So, so we, you know, as you look at to see who the Medal of Honor uh, holders are, it was stripped away from her. And then it was, I believe, reinstated sort of back in the 70s, I believe. And, and I know that we, are, we have women who've made tremendous contributions out there who have not been recognized with this 
really coveted medal. And so we have to work harder to make sure that we are recognizing that women serve, women serve in these tremendous roles and that they do amazing things and putting them forth for, for awards like this. And finally, I wanted to bring your attention to Clara Raven, um, first woman commissioned as an American military colonel in World War II Army Medical Corps. She was a deputy chief medical examiner of Wayne County in 20 years of research and did 20 years of research on sudden infant death syndrome. These are women who've made a difference. This was a woman who made a difference in Michigan and she served our country valiantly. There are women right now that are living history, that are out there making a difference. They're not identifying as veterans, but there are many out there that are veterans. So I always ask this question, if you have served in the military and, and you were discharged and you did that one day in service here in Michigan, you are considered a veteran. So I challenge you to talk to the women around you, to ask for their stories. And I also challenge you to share your stories, women veterans, women who serve. It doesn't matter how big or small your story is, share your story. The Library of Congress is looking for your stories. The uh, Women Veterans Memorial out in DC is looking for your stories and you can check them all out. You can Google those entities to find out more information about how you can share your story or the story of your family member who is now passed on. It's so important that we continue to do that so that the young girls who are coming behind us understand and recognize and, be, and are able to see themselves in service just as we have. So, you know, as we continue to reflect on the accomplishment of women pioneers, it's important that we, can, that we, we do this and we do this often because it is easy to take for grant, granted the progress that we've made. By telling these stories, we can see the progress we've made while we continue to improve upon their legacy to make all lives better. Um, additionally, this week we're talking about women's health and I encourage you and implore you that if you are not connected to healthcare and you have served in the military and you're not sure what your benefits are, then you need to contact us at 1-800-MISHVET. That's 1-800-642-4838. They can help you with things like um, fertility uh, treatments in some areas. They can help you with hormone treatment. They can help you with hearing aids, you know, uh, uh, annual uh, checkups with mammograms and all of those different things. And so you're missing out on those, those opportunities. And if you're a woman veteran who knows you qualify for the healthcare system, but you utilize the healthcare system years ago and something happened and you're not there anymore, the VA is changing, it has changed, and it's continuing to be open to serving veterans. So don't, don't not go just because of what happened in the past. So I encourage you to continue to, to, to fight for your benefits, to utilize your benefits, and to use your voice to tell your story. We're looking forward to a great show today. We're, we're going to be joined by Lourdes Tiglau. We're going to be joined by Ina Golden. We're going to be joined by Amber Fogarty today. It's a show that you don't want to miss, full of history, information, and good stories. So stick around. We'll be right back on The Veterans Perspective. back to the Veterans Perspective. Joining me is our first guest, Lourdes Tiglau, Director of the Center for Women Veterans at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Lourdes is 
the current director and serves as primary advisor to the secretary on department policies, programs, and legislation that affect women veterans. Her background cuts across many sectors, including the military, federal, and nonprofit organizations, including Team Rubicon, spanning over a decade in leadership roles across business, communications, and healthcare. Prior to joining the Department of VA, she was the Global Partnerships Manager at Airbnb, overseeing a portfolio of 70 plus nonprofit, private sector, and international aid agencies across six continents. She also previously served as a member of the My VA Advisory Committee, charged with advising the Secretary of Veterans Affairs with the focus on improving customer service, veteran outcomes, and setting the course for long-term reform and excellence. She served in the US Air Force as a part of the critical care air support team with deployments to Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, and the Philippines, and more. Her passion for service to the veteran community to leave a positive impact is the fuel that drives her lifelong advocacy for veterans across, around the globe. Welcome to the show, Lourdes. Thank you so much. I am honored to be here. You know, it's so great to have you on the show, especially during Women's History Month. And I know that you're, you yourself have broken and, and made history as the first, is it uh, Filipino uh, director? That is correct. So, you know, we, we definitely thank you for your service and for, for breaking that glass ceiling. And, you know, as I, I mentioned uh, to someone earlier today, you know, we are in these positions to make sure that these first are not the last. And so I appreciate everything that you're doing across the country to make sure that we're raising awareness and attention to those underserved populations. But before we dive into a little bit of, uh, of, of talking about that, I would love to know more about um, some of your experiences as um, part of the critical care air support team, transport team within the Air Force. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm going to be dating myself, but I joined the Air Force when I was in, in 1996 and uh, got enlisted to be part of the critical care air transport team in 2000 and went through school in 2001, um, just before 9-11. Uh, and I was actually in training during 9-11 when that happened. And so uh, one of the things that was really interesting is that if you think about the, the actual group itself, it is a three-person group. It's a physician, a nurse, and a cardiopulmonary specialist, which is me. And think of it as a flying intensive care unit. And you are relying on just one of three people to have your back when you're in the air to keep a patient alive. We, um, I remember my very first deployment. Um, we were out in Diego Garcia in the AOR um, right after 9-11, uh, I deployed three weeks after 9-11 um, within the AOR of Afghanistan and we were doing several rounds in the AOR. And I remember just one, being a little bit overwhelmed because the, the forces that were there weren't just American forces. There was a coalition of the, the, UK, the British forces, the, the Australians, but the one thing that was really apparent was that when we were all um, looking and, and working towards a singular objective and mission, it didn't matter what force you were in, you were all working towards the same goal. And so there was a lot of um, exchange of resource of, um, and also a lot of camaraderie. The one thing that I'll say is that um, 
in the medical field, there were definitely a little bit, um, a little bit more parity with regards to the men and women. Um, and I think the one thing though that was apparent was that in other forces, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, when I deployed, we were out, uh, in some of my other deployments, we were out with um, special forces or we were out with uh, the Marines and it was overwhelmingly more men in, um, in those particular career fields. Uh, and it's only, I've, at least in my experience, it was only in the medical field where I saw that that gap was not as apparent. Um, but you know, as, as the years went on, we saw that gap start falling away. And so there were more combat roles that were allowed for women, but I mean, it's still, it, it's still a process. Um, I've had, I, I, I joke sometimes out of my almost 12 years, um, I have been out of the country um, seven of those years. And three of those years was purely deployments. And so I'll say that I've been to quite a few different countries um, and really through all the ups and downs, I wouldn't trade any of those uh, experiences. Well, and you know, I would say, you know, as I hear your story, I think about the many times a woman goes to, you know, a, a low, you know, an organization or a big box store and they park in a veterans only parking spot and get harassed about that. And I think about the fact that you were in this combat role where you were flying and taking care of combat injured veterans. And for anyone to say that your service is not service or any of the other women that served, it's like, it's, it's, it's eye-opening. So I appreciate you sharing that story. And, and, you know, I think it gives a little bit more context to the role that you play in the, the federal VA at large in elevating the stories of women. And so, you know, as the current director, you know, we're talking about history. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why the need for a Center for Women Veterans and like, where did this come from? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a really great question because, for as many years as the Center for Women Veterans has existed, um, the, the history of it isn't always well known. Um, the, I'd say that the genesis of the idea actually started way back in the 1980s. Um, for context, the center actually didn't even get um, placed into law until 1994, but it wasn't until even 19, the 1980 census that America realized that there were as many American women or that were actually serving in the military. Uh, just as a little fun fact, 1980 census, the first time that American women were actually um, asked if they've ever served in the military and over 1.2 million said yes. And so that opened the eyes of the politicians, of Congress, of the public, of how many women were actually serving in the military. And then soon after, it, it wasn't, it was soon after that census that women were even granted veteran status. So think about women, women veterans have been, well, women have been serving in roles within the military, whether acknowledged or not, since the Revolutionary War. And it, was not, it wasn't only until after the 1980 census that veteran status was granted for women. And so fast forward there, um, 1983, 84, there, um, the Advisory Committee on Women Veterans was established. And when they had uh, their first committee meeting and found out so many 
ways in which the system was failing women veterans. Uh, there wasn't parity in how they were receiving their health care and how their, um, their disability and compensation evaluation didn't always have um, uh, an examination component to it. And so that's really where the establishment of the Center for Women Veterans um, got started through Congress in 1994. Now, fast forward um, 1990, 1994 to now, a lot of things have happened um, since then. A lot of water under that bridge, um, a lot of firsts, um, a lot of uh, progress towards trying to get parity and um, just equality for the benefits and services for women veterans, but it is an ongoing process. We cannot let our foot off the gas. Um, even to this day, you just talked about um, parking spaces that are dedicated for veterans. And when a woman goes into park, um, we not always, but we, a lot of times, we'll get asked to get a raised eyebrow about why we're parking there. And so, uh, and part of the part of that problem is that that goes to our own evaluation of our own service. A lot of times, women veterans, especially those who didn't serve in combat roles, they'll question whether they've done enough to be um, called a veteran. And so, I, I think that with regard to just the center being there, we're there as advocates for our women veterans, not only within the administration, but also externally, and also making sure that um, we are helping our women veterans get over hurdles that um, they're encountering when they're trying to get their benefits and services. Well, you know what? I, I, you know, I think we need to have this conversation and, and, and finish up part two of this conversation, but I wanna thank you for joining us today on the show and we look forward to having you back. So um, you guys stick around with us. We'll be right back on The Veterans Perspective. Back to the Veterans Perspective. Joining me is our next guest, Ina Golden, a Navy veteran, retired. Ina was, has been a registered nurse for 40 years. She is a Vietnam era Navy veteran where she served as a hospital corpsman, helping deliver babies and care for women and children. As a registered nurse, she worked in pediatrics and the emergency department and many other areas of healthcare. As an educator, she taught advanced cardiac <laughs> Uh, cardiac, I'm sorry, I got to get that out, life support to critical care nurses, paramedics, and physicians. Ina has also been a certified American Heart Association CPR instructor for many years. She's participated in several research projects and is published in professional journals. Ina and her husband are retired. They bought a log cabin in 2020 and befriended members of the local Amish community. She now assists the Amish a midwife with home births and laboring mothers in the baby house at the Midwife's Farm in Sears, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Ina. Thank you very much, Director Adams. 
Ah, thank you so much for coming on. And you know what? First of all, I want to thank you for your service and welcome, welcome you home. I know Vietnam era veterans did not get that recognition and we want to make sure that you're recognized now. Thank you. So, I mean, serving, you know, in Vietnam, that had to be, uh, you know, that had to be interesting. But before we really get into talking about that, you know, what made you choose joining the Navy? Well, a couple of different things did. I had a couple of relatives that had been in the military, and I knew about them when I was very young. My Uncle Dick was in the um, Korean era, and I had an aunt who lived in Massachusetts who was a nurse in World War II in England. And so <clears throat> I knew about them when I was little. But then I went through school and did pretty well in school. I was a very good student, planned to go to college. But then my dad died when I was 16 and our family was very poor. And I worked hard and, at my studies and worked hard after school and got money to go to college for a few years, but just couldn't complete it. But I really wanted to go to school. So I talked to my old high school counselor and she said, have you ever thought of the military? They have a benefit called GI Bill. So I checked into it and I only went to the Navy because my uncle had, and grandfather had been in the Navy and tested well and then joined the Navy with a guaranteed A school to be a hospital corpsman. That is, you know, impressive. I mean, and I think a lot of people, you know, at some point, you know, they, they joined for school, but, you know, you stayed for, you know, you know, how many years were you in? I was in two and a half years. I was not retired Navy. Okay. And did you, did you um, go overseas at all? I did. Uh, I was stationed in Sardinia, or La Maddalena, Sardinia, Italy, for a year. It's an isolated island off the coast of an isolated island, and I took care of women and children whose husbands were on a submarine tender, and that tender was on another island, and it serviced fast-attack nuclear submarines that were in the Mediterranean that year. Wow, what an interesting job. So, you know, I know that there's a lot that has been changing as it relates to women, veterans and women being recognized as veteran as veterans since Vietnam. But, you know, what was it like serving as a woman in Vietnam? Well, era? I wasn't in Vietnam, the Vietnam era. Well, first of all, there in the Navy, if you look at it during the time that I was in, it was 1.6% were in the Navy. And when I was... Um, assigned to go to New London, Connecticut, a submarine base, all the waves could put fit into one tri-level home. And then they had more and more waves that came in and then we were in a barracks. But I would say that there were maybe a dozen of us total. And uh, we just did our jobs. And I went to work in labor and delivery at the hospital. And others were yeomen, and, and we really didn't have the benefit, the uh, ratings that we could go into at that time. We were kind of limited. We were not allowed on ships. I did visit a few submarines, but um, that was all. We were, not, of course, not allowed on submarines. And I guess women are now on submarines as of 10 years ago. Um, yeah. But it was a job, and you did it. Yeah, that is, that is still so recent to say that women are just now serving 
on submarines. I mean, but you know, it's because of women like you and the women that came before you, um, and then you know, even some after you that have really paved the way for that ability to do that. So thank you for that. Um, you know, at, in the jobs that you do, you know, today we're talking about women's health, and so. Can you share with us, like, how as a Navy hospital corpsman and then a registered nurse of 40 years, how has, you know, women's medicine changed? Oh, tremendously. And as uh, you read earlier that I, I taught about cardiac life support and how to identify people having heart attacks and then how to treat them. Well, it's not the same. Women and men are not the same. And we just recently started identifying that because women were not treated this treated for their symptoms because men thought well women don't get heart attacks and the doctors really weren't taught that in medical school either and uh, then and women do not present with the elephant sitting on their chest difficulty breathing with um, pain going down their left arm yes they will have difficulty breathing but there's a lot of other symptoms that are not like how they, they first researched with heart attacks in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was only in the 90s when they said, hey, women are coming in and they're having heart attacks and we need to address their um, symptoms quicker and get them the, the uh, treatment that they need quicker as well. well I, yeah, you know, we talked about this last month as well. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, women just kind of brush it off. Okay, I'm stressed. I'm tired. I'm overworked. We don't look at it as a heart attack. So that what you what you mentioned is so important that we take those symptoms seriously and don't just brush them off as everything that we can we can decide to brush them off as. Um, you know, from your experience, do you think women are taking better care of their health now than they were before? Well, I, I think yes and no. I think those women that can afford healthcare are, and those women that have technology that look at, um, oh, read different things, but those women who cannot afford the doctor visits, and they're so expensive, and then you get the lab results, and that's expensive as well. You know, I'm so glad that I have Medicare and I have um, a Blue Cross from when my husband worked at General Motors, because just so a couple of months ago, I went in for a skin check for the dermatologist and it was, she was a tech, she was not a doctor. She looked at my skin very briefly, asked if I had any questions and I said no. And then we got the uh, bill, what was being paid and it was $600 for that skin check. I was just appalled, but luckily I have insurance so I didn't have to worry about it. But if somebody goes in once for a skin check and gets a bill like that, do you think they're going to keep going back year after year? They're not. And then there's the medications are so expensive for, for the people that cannot afford it. I can remember working in the hospital and I worked in a poor area and of course in a, a hospital that had a lot of poverty. And I kept thinking we need to do something better uh, to have people have better health care. Well, you know, you bring up some great points, and that's why I think it's so important that women, if you don't have health care, you reach out to the MVAA or the VA to find out what you qualify for, because it's so important to get those checks. Ina, I want to thank you so much for your service. I want to thank you for your sacrifice and your continued service, you know, as a, as a, a veteran in the community. And thank you for joining our show today. 
Thank you, Director Adams. You know, uh, we will be right back on the Veterans Perspective and we'll be joined by our next guest, Amber Fogarty. Stick around, you don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective, presented by the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency. Now, your host, director of the MVAA, Zanetta Adams. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective. My final guest for the day is Amber Fogarty, and she is the manager of Talent Pipeline Programs for Consumer Energy and U.S. Army, and she's a U.S. Army veteran. She served in the early 90s on active duty, and her primary duty station was Fort Campbell, Kentucky. After leaving the military, Amber received her bachelor's degree in English and communications from Aquinas College and her master's in school and agency counseling from Central Michigan University. She taught middle school English and served as a guidance counselor in Portland, Michigan for 14 years prior to transitioning into the energy sector. In addition to her full-time role as a talent pipeline programs manager for consumers, she has played a big part in the company's veterans organization. As a former chairperson of that group, she has registered many job roles under the Department of Labor's apprenticeship umbrella, allowing veterans to utilize their GI Bill funds, aided in expanding the leave policy and paid differential for deployed veteran employees, organized numerous volunteer and fundraising events, and connected many of her coworkers with helpful veteran resources. Amber serves on the Michigan Women Veterans Coalition, is a member of Team Rubicon and a former Red Cross volunteer. In her free time, she enjoys being active outdoors, kayaking, paddleboarding, traveling, and fitness. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. That is quite an impressive uh, resume, especially as we're talking about Women's History Month and honoring women during this month. Um, you know, I think it's so important that we have these conversations. And so I would love to know, I mean, I know I have my reasons for why I enlisted in the military and in the army, but what, was, what were your reasons? I think, uh, Director, my number one reason uh, selfishly was college money. I mean, that was initially my first uh, motivation. I was kind of lost at that point in my life. What was I going to do? I actually was enrolled in Central Michigan University uh, to become a teacher. And uh, my parents were not in a position to help me pay for college. And so um, I feel like college money was a driving force. But once I started getting my toes wet, uh, I, I loved it way more than I thought I would. And it, uh, it really helped me grow up and find myself. So did you join, join while you were in college or did you go to college after? No, I joined right out of high school and I went to college upon my return. Okay, so um, did you utilize, um, you utilized your GI Bill benefits, right? And so um, how was that experience and what barriers do you think were in place at the time when you decided to use that? I did use every penny of my GI Bill dollars actually. And uh, it, it really almost paid for my entire bachelor's degree. I didn't have any barriers. I know a lot has changed since the 90s and improvements have been made, but um, I really didn't have any barriers other than just awaiting the, the reimbursement. But no, no, no barriers there. It was, it was a godsend. That's great. And I, I heard you say that you, you wanted to be a teacher. So obviously you're doing something different. I mean, maybe you're doing some training in your job, but what, 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 what uh, redirected your path, I would say? Oh my gosh, there's so many factors that, that play a role in that. And I think primarily 
Um, I really was just kind of burning out in public education. I got to a point where I didn't love going to work every day. I loved the students. I enjoyed working with them. I coached, I coached volleyball, I coached track. I missed the students, but there were so many other factors that just caused me to not enjoy it every day. Politics, parents, uh, just so many things. I was being pulled in numerous directions and I, and I wanted to love going to work every day again. I definitely understand that, um, you know, and so you're, you've gone from being this teacher and now you're, you know, you're, you're working as a talent pipeline programs manager for consumer energy. How has this position enabled you to help veterans to transition? Yeah, the beauty of it is I still get to work with students. Uh, I just get to work with students who really want to be there, who know kind of where their career paths are leading them. They're a little more uh, motivated, a little more driven to succeed. And, um, you know, the veterans piece of it has been a major bonus. I didn't expect this coming into Consumers Energy. I, I took a big leap of faith to leave public education and give my summers, you know, I had my summers off. And, um, but it's just been a, an amazing transition. And the veteran piece uh, it just magically kind of fell into place. You know, I started talking with former colleagues and did you know we had this veterans group and got involved. And before I knew it, I was the secretary of that organization. And then, oh my gosh, a chair position opened up. And it's really been through that employee resource group that doors have opened. And then the Michigan Women's Veterans Coalition opportunity came forward. And now Veterans and Energy Organization at a national level. So there's just a number of things that um, the doors have kind of opened for me as a veteran. You know, that that's amazing. And we love to hear these success stories, but we know that there's not always success stories. And, you know, working in the position that you're in, do you see it difficult to, to engage or to, to attract women veterans? And what can we do? So absolutely, it's difficult to engage women veterans, especially in the work I do. Um, a lot of our pipeline programs are more skilled trade related. Uh, specifically line workers. We don't see a lot of women interested in the line work career path. Uh, I'd love to see more of them. It just isn't always a match. Um, it's a very physical job that involves some, you know, fitness assessments and things that women aren't always um, cut out for. So uh, yeah, I, but however, we have such a wealth of jobs within our company and so many opportunities for women veterans um, you know, we are a gold level veteran friendly employer and uh, you put veteran on your resume and, and you're going to get you're going to get some notice at our company. So, yeah. Well, you know, you know, being a veteran and working in this position, you know, you have to have this work life balance. I think that's what everybody's been talking about. Right. Especially with the pandemic. And so how do you maintain a work life balance and how would you encourage others to do the same if you do maintain one? <laughs> so I haven't always. Matter of fact, that probably might be part of the reason I burned out in public education because I didn't quite understand that concept. And um, it took years to mold that. And I would say um, most importantly, and Consumers Energy supports this notion of work-life balance to the utmost degree. Um, but most importantly, I think it's taking time for yourself. Um, we, we, we tend to have this notion that people who work around the clock and are responding to emails at 2 a.m. and that they're, they're the hardest workers. 
And that's not true. That work-life balance is so much more important to the overall physical mental health of an individual that if you don't take the time for yourself, use your vacation time, um, make your, your body uh, a priority, those kind of things kind of uh, fall through, fall by the wayside for a lot of folks. That is so true. And I think I've been uh, the, uh, a perpetrator of that myself, um, working the midnight oil and not having that, um, that work-life balance. But I, I think COVID really kind of pushed us into that space to have a little bit more of that. So, you know, uh, talk about some blessings in disguise, right? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, you sit on the Michigan Women Veterans Coalition and you probably have attended more of those meetings than I have. Can you share with us um, a little bit about um, the excitement or what's going on um, regarding the conference for in June? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for this conference in June. Um, Erica's been such an instrumental piece of this puzzle. And I, I think what excites me most is just the opportunity for women to network with women. Um, you know, sometimes we just, we don't get those opportunities, especially in this COVID world to network with like-minded individuals and, and put ourselves first and, and the lineup and the agenda that you guys, you know, that we're, that we're molding is just that it's super exciting to see that we're taking the time to honor these women and, and help them find that balance that they're looking for. Well, I definitely want to thank you for sharing your time and your story. And, you know, if you're looking for uh, work, I would definitely say visit Consumers Energy website. Um, they, are, they are a gold level employer and they are really doing great work in the veteran space. So thank you so much for joining us. You bet. My pleasure. And I want to thank the rest of our guests, Lourdes Tigwell, Director of Center for Women Veterans, and Ina Golden, a retired Navy veteran, for joining us today. Remember, you can always find out more information that you heard on the show at 1-800-MICHVET. That's 1-800-642-4838. You can also visit us at michigan.gov slash MVAA. If you're a veteran dealing with crisis, as always, you can call 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. Thank you so much for, having, for being here today, and we'll see you next week on The Veterans Perspective.